Welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Keep the Faith brings you timely messages with in-depth spiritual analysis of current events in light of Bible prophecy so you can prepare for the coming of Jesus. Listen to what the news won't tell you. Here is another important message for our times. This is Pastor Hal Mayer. Dear friends, welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Thank you for joining me today as we look at the powerful effect of the election of Donald Trump to the U.S. Presidency of the United States of America. All presidents of the U.S. have a prophetic role. Most people aren't paying attention to the hidden principles and potentials guiding those they elect into office. For instance, no president of the United States can avoid the manipulation of the Catholic bishops and Jesuits that are often in the halls and offices of the United States congressional members and the corridors of the White House. They are continually working toward their own ends, even if the incumbent isn't intentionally working in their interests. Today we're going to learn, however, that there are other elements that are guiding Donald Trump, but that ultimately they are in unity with the Catholic Church. Remember, Rome doesn't always have to work directly to achieve their purposes. They can work through others, and these others are very dangerous to religious liberty and the freedoms we still enjoy today. And at least one of those influencing Mr. Trump should make you sit up and pay attention if you're a follower of Jesus and understand the end times. But before we begin, I would like to just thank you for your support for our work. Your gifts and prayers mean much to us, and we have made so much progress. We thank you for your gifts and your continued support throughout 2017 as we reach more people and to help them get ready for the coming overwhelming surprise. Also, if you have not yet ordered your DVD set called Prophetic Secrets of the New World Order, please call our office and get it. It will help you understand our times like never before. Also, please share the pink card included in your packet with someone else and invite them to get our free CD and Prophetic Intelligence briefing subscription by email. We send you 12 of these cards every year. Perhaps you can find one person per month to offer it to. They will be blessed, and you will never know who will be in the kingdom of heaven because of your offer. As we begin today, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we look at the compelling times in which we live, I pray that you will show us how to understand the signs of the times. We see the storm clouds gathering on the horizon, but you have a plan for your people. Most of them are shallow in their thinking. They don't understand how to discern the signs of the times when their emotions are caught up in the events taking place in our world. Please, Father, help them see. May this message be shared with some who know not what they see in the news so they can awaken out of their slumber. Please send your Holy Spirit to speak to us today as we study the prophetically charged influences behind the new President of the United States. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let us start with a scripture text. It's a familiar one from Revelation 13, verse 11. If you can, please open your Bibles with me. And I heard another beast come up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. That's talking about the United States becoming a persecuting power against those who will not worship in the legal way. What does that have to do with Mr. Trump? Well, I've noticed 
something concerning the circumstances of Donald Trump's election to the presidency of the United States. I've been watching major prophetic developments as they have been growing during the last 30 years or so until they have matured so much that they have reached a tipping point. Some of you no doubt remember that during some of my sermons I have spoken about those tipping points and their serious consequences. I have warned that these are all maturing more or less at the same time. I have been concerned that once these reach a crescendo, we will see a dramatic change in the circumstances, and all of a sudden, the prophetic issues that have long been anticipated will come into focus. Here they are. First, globalization has reached a tipping point. In spite of whatever Donald Trump might do to roll back the clock on globalization and the New World Order, he will not be able to effect lasting change. The momentum and control by powers well above him will continue their agenda right around him. Yes, it may slow down a little bit by complicating their plans. There may be some adjustments, but the trajectory will still be the same. Globalization is important to prophetically because it is tied to the universal worship laws that will be imposed on the world according to Revelation 13. You cannot have a global religion or universal religious laws unless you have a global political order, a global economic order, a global education order, and a recognized global religious authority. We are very near that point, my friends. No doubt you can see that clearly. As new politicians come on the scene, they have their differing agendas and goals. The powers behind the scenes work with them to accomplish some aspects of their plans. Then they work with the next lot of leaders to accomplish other aspects of their plans. Politicians who oppose globalist plans don't really derail them. Internationalists just bide their time and achieve what they can under the opposing leadership. And then when more favorable circumstances arise, they press forward again. Elites of every stripe know this principle, and so does the Catholic Church. Secondly, the world has reached such a state of moral wickedness that it is now pervasive on many fronts, from the top echelons of power to the lowest neighborhoods. Moral perversity, corruption, and crime has risen to new heights. With same-sex marriage in many countries, with sexual predators among the rulers of the world, the unprecedented rise of pornographic digital media, music, and video, it is now pervasive. Crime is rampant. Violence is everywhere. No longer are the people of the world restrained by the power of God's Spirit, and they do what they want. They do not care about the law of God. They do not think about the future. They only think about the present. They do not consider that there will come a time when it will all end and they will be on the wrong side of God's law. Thirdly, we've reached a point in which the United States Constitution is but a shell of its former self. Every principle, including religious liberty, has come under assault, mostly in the name of fighting terrorism. But President Obama took the assault on religious liberty to new heights through same-sex marriage and his signature health care bill, known as the Affordable Care Act. As a result, Christians who own businesses have been persecuted by lawsuits that have caused them to go out of business or violate their consciences. This was not an assault on worship, per se. It was an assault on the religious beliefs and practices of Christians in other areas of their lives. Additionally, under President Obama's reign, there has been a redefinition of religious liberty. 
It's no longer freedom of religion, it is freedom of worship. And there is a huge difference between the two, as you can now understand. In other words, you can have freedom of worship, but you don't have freedom to live according to your understanding of the Bible in the marketplace. Obama and his cronies pushed so far to the left that there was bound to be a rightward reaction. That reaction is now in play. Now the evangelicals are likely to, to do all they can to roll back the clock and reestablish biblical principles. While much of this is welcome to all Christians, the danger is that they will not come back to center, but rather swing all the way to the other ditch and start dictating conscience. Fourthly, and perhaps most directly related to Donald Trump's presidency, there has been the maturing of the ecumenical movement under Pope Francis. This has stripped any opposition to Rome from all of the churches, and I mean all of them. Some of them are still a ways off from Rome, but they are all making steps to unite with the papacy, even perhaps your favorite church, tragically. There is no longer any church that is strongly Protestant anymore. There is no denomination that is presenting the three angels' messages and the fourth angels' message of Revelation 18 as it should be preached. While there may be some who believe them or who claim to uphold them, there are precious few who actually preach them. As the ecumenical principles have infiltrated down through the churches, as they've lost their biblical principles, they have become increasingly political. Fifthly, the economy has been in a global squeeze as the middle class is gradually being stripped out of the developed societies. Don't think that because you may feel like you have a reasonable life that you are economically secure. The economy is being propped up globally by quantitative easing, which amounts to manipulation by the central banks in order to prop up the economies of nations until they eventually implode in their own debt. When that happens, it will be too late and too difficult to recover. I do not believe that a full collapse will happen until such a time as there is national apostasy in the form of worship laws or Sunday laws. The Bible tells us that there is a connection between worship laws and the economy, and we see that in Revelation 13 and 18. As all these tipping points converge in our own time in history, Bible prophecy seems more relevant than ever. It now describes our times in ways that we would not have imagined even ten years ago. Yet every prediction of Scripture will come true. And in the midst of all these maturing issues, we now have the rise of Donald Trump on the backs of the religious right, otherwise known as the evangelicals. Donald Trump became president because of the anger of many Americans at the social restructuring that President Obama had brought to America. Obama campaigned on the motto of hope and change, though he did not say what that change would be. That change has proven to be a shift to the radical left. He changed America in such profound ways that he alienated a huge number of people and motivated many who would not have voted otherwise to get out and vote for Hillary's opponent. Many Americans did not want Hillary because she represented more of President Obama. But Donald Trump's success was the result of a mixture of many things. Trump comes to the presidency as his own man. He ran against both major parties and won. He defied all the conventions of modern campaigning and won. Weaponizing social media, he told the mainstream media to take a hike, and he still won. At a time when virtually all American institutions 
save for the military, have lost the trust of many Americans, Trump was alone among more than 20 would-be nominees in both major parties in winning that trust. Donald Trump took the headlines so much so that no one else during the primaries really mattered. Even during the national campaign, Trump seized the attention the media was willing to give him. Though they mocked and ridiculed him and declared him unfit to lead, along with a host of other negative epitaphs, he won anyway. He effectively turned all the media negativity on its head. He tapped into the angst that was boiling inside the middle class in middle America. Trump, who doesn't have terribly much morality himself, gained his traction on the backs of evangelicals who were angry at the dramatic moral dive to the bottom that America has taken during the Obama years. Those who voted for Obama in 2008 and 2012 have no idea, perhaps, that they are partakers of the sins he committed while he was in office. And those who voted for Donald Trump likely have no idea that they are already partakers of the sins he will commit while he is in office. The sword cuts both ways. President Trump now holds the reins of power, and it is not without its consequences. But he did not achieve the high office without help. And one of those who helped him significantly, and perhaps more than any other, was the highly respected Seventh-day Adventist, Ben Carson. In an unprecedented maneuver, believe it or not, Carson, along with some others, orchestrated the election of Donald Trump by coordinating with and then handing him the evangelicals. Without Ben Carson, perhaps the evangelicals would not have united around Trump enough to put him in office. It's not that evangelicals are unilaterally supportive of Trump's character issues, for they acknowledge that he has serious flaws. But to their minds, he was the lesser of two evils. He's not perfect, they said, but he's ours. During the early part of the campaign, evangelicals were very reticent to support Trump. They needed someone to bring them together. That person was Ben Carson. And he did it masterfully, and Trump prostrated himself before the evangelicals telling them that he would give them more power and that he would be their hero, and it would be so great for them if he were president. He offered them the grand prize. He told them he would nominate conservative judges to the Supreme Court who would help them get America back to its moral principles. Evangelicals found excuses to support Trump in spite of his lack of biblical principles in his own life. James Dobson declared him to be a baby Christian. Friends, in other words, Trump promised to unite church and state in America. Little does he realize that America will become the second beast of Revelation 13.11 that will speak like a dragon when he does. We saw some of this from the opposite perspective under President Obama. But with the evangelicals on a roll, we are likely to see a lot more of it from the opposite perspective. Much of the evangelical agenda will be good for America, but they do not know their boundaries. They do not understand the balance of true freedom. They are just as ignorant of it as the liberals. America is so polarized that there is no hope of centering it again. Before we go on, first let me remind you of a statement in the book Fundamentals of Christian Education, page 475. You may think that what I said a few moments ago about those who voted for Trump and Obama being partakers of the sins they commit while they are in office, and that it was a bit too strong. But here is the exact inspired statement. Listen. 
The Lord would have his people bury political questions. On these themes, silence is eloquence. Christ calls upon his followers to come into unity on the pure gospel principles which are plainly revealed in the word of God. We cannot with safety vote for political parties, for we do not know whom we are voting for. We cannot with safety take part in any political schemes. We cannot labor to please men who will use their influence to repress religious liberty and set in operation oppressive measures to lead or compel their fellow men to keep Sunday as the Sabbath. The first day of the week is not a day to be reverenced. It is a spurious Sabbath, and the members of the Lord's family cannot participate with the men who exalt this day and violate the law of God by trampling upon his Sabbath. The people of God are not to vote to place such men in office, for when they do this, they are partakers with them of the sins which they commit while in office. I'm sorry to tell you, my friends, but that's the truth. You cannot escape it. So if you voted for Obama, you were also voting for the sins Hillary Clinton would commit while she was head of the State Department. And there were many. And if you voted for Trump, perhaps you need to rethink your actions and plead with God for forgiveness. Ben Carson is the honorary national chairman of My Faith Votes, a nonprofit organization designed to encourage religious people to vote, most of which would vote Republican and therefore for Trump. Anybody who understands the evangelical demographic of the United States would realize that evangelicals aren't likely to vote Democrat. They are too liberal for them, too unbiblical, too secular. So for Ben Carson's organization to get religious people out to vote is really calling for them to vote for Trump without saying so. Perhaps his appeal got many Seventh-day Adventists to vote for Trump, too. When Carson folded his campaign for president, he started another campaign. His new goal was to get as many evangelicals and other people of faith to vote for Donald Trump as possible. He could see that Trump would likely take the nomination. He joined Bill Dallas of United in Purpose, another nonprofit organization dedicated to mobilizing Christians to be politically engaged through voting based on biblical values, and the two of them orchestrated a meeting between Trump and some evangelicals. First, it was intended to be a discussion with about a hundred evangelical leaders, but as word got around about the meeting, there was a tidal wave of interest, which eventually led to a meeting with over a thousand. Carson gave the opening keynote address at the meeting and explained his conviction that Donald Trump would help evangelicals become a significant voice in politics again. This moment is perhaps the most critical in the history of our nation, and people of faith can make a crucial difference for our children and grandchildren by exercising their civic duty to cast an informed vote based on a biblical worldview, said Carson. The goal is that coming out of this meaningful conversation, the faith leaders and Mr. Trump will be more informed about each other and would know one another better, and that we, he would see their unity in seeking God's direction for the future of America. Did you notice that about unity? Never before has there been so much unity between religious leaders in America. The predictions of the Holy Scripture concerning the religious revival at the end of time will seem so right when in fact it is leading to the wrong conclusion. That movement, a revival like no other, will bring on persecution of those who keep all of God's commandments. Carson is apparently unaware that God's people should bury political questions. They have a higher work to do. They're called to proclaim the everlasting gospel and the three angels' messages of Revelation 14. This is not a time to be diverted from that purpose by political partyism.
We are near the end, especially as all these major prophetic issues are coalescing right before our eyes. Do you think it's possible that the enemy would love to use a Seventh-day Adventist to bring on the end-time Sunday laws? Mr. Carson has taken on a huge spiritual liability in working in this campaign. Could he not only be a partaker of the sins Donald Trump will commit while he's in office, but also guilty of betraying the interests of those who love religious liberty by helping evangelicals gain political power so that they can enact a Sunday law? Imagine what could happen. Could Carson be used by the enemy in the name of doing good to bring on the last final crisis? Could he be an effective influence in confusing many Seventh-day Adventists to go along with the evangelical power, thinking that they are doing good, when in reality they'll be collaborating and bringing on the final movements? I'm amazed at how many of God's people are enthusiastic about Donald Trump and voted for him. I do not mean to disparage anyone, especially highly respected individuals. However, I must speak the truth clearly so that everyone may understand God's will through his clear counsel. Ben Carson and Bill Dallas showed the evangelicals that if they united around a particular candidate, they could put him in office. He would then have to repay them. This is the key to understanding Trump in light of Bible prophecy. Mobilizing evangelicals around Donald Trump was Carson's powerful contribution. Even if there are no worship laws during Trump's presidency, even if the oft-anticipated events don't unfold while he is in office, Evangelicals aren't likely to go back on the sidelines. They're likely to learn their lessons and increase their power in proportion to their success, especially if there are no restrictions on their involvement in politics. Friends, Trump intends to create the image of the beast, meaning that he is going to unite church and state and hand power to the church. He has no clue where this will lead, but I bet the evangelicals do. They aren't talking about it, but the ultimate aim of the enemy of souls, whether they realize it or not, is to bring in Sunday worship laws. The Bible clearly spells this out in Revelation 13. And Roman Catholicism is interested in the same thing. Popes have been talking about it for decades, even centuries. John Paul II wrote about it. Benedict XVI talked about it. And now Pope Francis is writing and talking about it. And with the ecumenical movement maturing nicely, imagine how easy it would be, when the time is right, for evangelicals to be influenced by Rome, which is where Sunday observance comes from in the first place, to demand a Sunday law. Once there are some disasters and other punishments on America for its sins, as the evangelicals will see them, they will demand Sunday laws from their leaders. Listen to this important statement from Volume 4 of the Spirit of Prophecy books. In the last conflict, the Sabbath will be the special point of controversy throughout all Christendom. Secular rulers and religious leaders will unite to enforce the observance of Sunday, and as milder measures fail, the most oppressive laws will be enacted. It will be urged that the few who stand in opposition to an institution of the church and a law of the land ought not to be tolerated, and a decree will finally be issued denouncing them as deserving of the severest punishment and giving the people liberty after a certain time to put them to death. Romanism in the old world, apostate Protestantism in the new, will pursue a similar course toward those who honor the divine precepts. That's Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 4, page 444 and 445. Did you get what is in that statement about Sunday laws? 
There are secular rulers and religious leaders uniting together, which is exactly what Donald Trump is planning to do. This will lead to oppressive laws to honor Sunday, which evangelicals are not yet talking about. There will be a decree or an executive order issued by the ruling president and other ruling parties. Donald Trump will likely use executive orders as much or more than any president in modern times. After all, he's a businessman, and they tend to be dictators. And lastly, did you notice that the decree will be for the purpose of giving average people liberty to put God's true people to death without due process or the courts? That is called extrajudicial killing in modern parlance, or assassination by gun-toting Americans and others. No wonder there is such a strong gun lobby in the United States. No wonder America is swamped in guns. No wonder it is so difficult for even the New World Order to get control of guns in the United States. There is a higher principality and power that is preventing it for its own reasons. While some are focused on the role of Roman Catholicism in end-time events in America, they miss the point that it is apostate Protestantism in America that will drive the engine of repression of religious liberty. The Pope, the bishops, and the Jesuits are certainly playing a big role behind the scenes, and they are not inactive, and they are certainly influencing the evangelicals, but it is the evangelicals that will lead the charge in advocating Sunday observance and persecution in America. Donald Trump's overtures to evangelicals were nothing short of prophetic. He prostituted himself to these daughters of Babylon and told them that he would give them more power, that they would have it really good, and that he would do all in his power to give them what they wanted. Christian leaders saw their influence and power growing even before Trump was inaugurated. Trump appointed a faith advisory board, which included a lineup of some of the most well-known conservative religious voices. These individuals have influenced Trump's choices with regard to his cabinet, the all-important Supreme Court, and other appointments. They also try to influence his theology, which could include everything from pro-life issues to health care to religious liberty and other key issues like Sunday observance, for instance. Here is a man who uses uh, filthy rock and roll singers like Elton John and the Rolling Stones at the beginning of his rallies but when he was with Christians, he held a Bible and declared what a great Christian he really is, while choirs sing familiar Christian music. Trump's Christianity seems extremely superficial and political. Members of Trump's faith advisory board include James Dobson of Focus on the Family, one of the most influential voices in evangelicalism. Dobson did not endorse Trump at first, but after the meeting with a thousand evangelical leaders, orchestrated in part by Ben Carson, he indicated that he believed Trump had accepted Christ. No doubt this was in the usual superficial and evangelical way. The board also includes Jerry Falwell Jr., president of Liberty University and son of the famous Jerry Falwell, founder of the Moral Majority in 1979. Falwell carries one of the biggest family names in evangelicalism, and has powerful influence. He was one of the first evangelical leaders to endorse Trump. Falwell's ties to Donald Trump go back to 2012 when he had Trump speak at a commencement at Liberty University, and they've been friendly ever since. His son was married at a Trump winery. 
The list also includes Richard Land, president of Southern Evangelical Seminary and formerly president of the Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission for 25 years. Land, who has not endorsed Trump, has accepted the position on Trump's faith advisory board because he believes that he has the obligation to influence Trump with biblical truth. Would that, to his mind, include Sunday worship? Also included is Paula White, one of the most well-known prosperity gospel preachers. White organized a meeting between Trump and several tele-evangelists. She is the founder of the Tampa megachurch with over 25,000 members. She is a popular TV show host that airs on Trinity Broadcasting, or TBN, and Black Entertainment Television, or BET. White and Trump have been friends for 15 years. Trump heard one of her sermons and invited her on his reality TV show. Now White is one of his closest advisors. Paula is a person of great faith and accomplishment, Trump said. She has been a tremendous friend, and I'm grateful for her guidance and support. White, along with Tim Clinton, president of the American Association of Christian Counselors, was one of the organizers of Trump's Faith Advisory Board. It was also Paula White that organized 40 evangelical leaders in September of 2015 to pray for Trump at a private meeting at the Trump Tower in New York. And as you know from our sermon last month, the advisory board also includes Kenneth and Gloria Copeland, well-known charismatic Texas ministers and tele-evangelists. Kenneth Copeland was led to Rome by the late Tony Palmer to visit Pope Francis. It is Copeland who thinks his direct access to President Trump will enable him to influence Trump on things that the Lord of his mind impresses him about. Another member of the board is James Robeson, a well-known TV personality. He hosts prominent evangelicals on his TV program. About 38 years ago, Robeson organized a rally of 10,000 people to fire up Christians to take back the nation, which some say was the beginning of the moral majority. Robeson visited the Pope with Kenneth Copeland and others at Tony Palmer's invitation. Michelle Bachman, a Republican politician, is also a member of the board. She spent eight years in the U.S. House of Representatives. A graduate of Oral Roberts University, Michelle has a false evangelical end-times worldview, including the rapture. David Barton, who believes tearing down the wall of separation between church and state is essential, is one of her closest advisors. Bachman identified with the Tea Party movement. Ralph Reed, founder of the Faith and Freedom Coalition, is a member of the board, too. Pat Robertson appointed him leader of the Christian Coalition in the 1990s. Reed's Faith and Freedom Coalition has been called the Christian Coalition on Steroids. Their group's events have featured many top evangelicals. Reed predicted two years ago that evangelicals' demand for a bold outsider with a magnetic personality would become president. Reed invited Trump to speak at his Faith and Freedom Coalition's Road to Morality event. He also played a role in getting voters to vote for Trump. Other members of Trump's Faith Advisory Board include A.R. Bernard, pastor of New York's biggest megachurch of 30,000 members, and he is the well-connected president of New York City's Council of Churches. Robert Morris, author and Texas megachurch pastor of 36,000, and Gentizen Franklin, Pentecostal pastor, author, and well-known speaker. Franklin attended Paula White's gathering in New York to pray for Donald Trump.
In addition, the board includes Harry Jackson, Maryland pastor, who is the presiding bishop of the International Communion of Evangelical Churches, the ICEC. Coach Tim Mullins, a well-connected pastor who works with abused and neglected children. Robert Jeffress, a well-known author and megachurch pastor in Dallas, Texas. Jeffress introduced Donald Trump at several rallies and said that any Christian who would sit at home and not vote for the Republican nominee is being motivated by pride rather than principle. Johnny Moore, evangelical advisor, is also on the board. If there's a major project or campaign aimed at the evangelical community, odds are Johnny Moore has been involved with it, and that includes the My Faith Votes event, which brought over a thousand evangelicals to New York to meet Donald Trump. Then there's Celie Yates, attorney, literary agent, and founder and president of My Faith Votes, of which Ben Carson is the honorary national chairman. Tom Winters, attorney who represents nonprofit churches, ministries, and charities, whose clients include T.D. Jakes, Tammy Faye Baker, Joyce Meyer, and Joel Osteen. Tim Clinton, national leader of Christian Counseling and president of the American Association of Christian Counselors, a 50,000-member group. Paula White recruited Clinton to help Trump finalize his faith advisory board list. Tony Suarez, executive vice president of the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Conference and whom the John Maxwell Group named to the top 100 evangelical leaders list. Mark Burns, South Carolina pastor who met Trump at the meeting organized by Paula White in Trump Towers in September of 2015. Ronnie Floyd, well-connected former president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Another member is well-known David Jeremiah, author, pastor, and tele-evangelist, who was considered to be among the top ten people who influenced pastors in a 2010 survey. He, too, was at the meeting in September 2015, organized by Paula White to pray for Donald Trump. Jack Graham, Texas pastor and evangelist who leads a 40,000-member Baptist church in Texas, a former president of the Southern Baptist Convention and honorary chairman of the 2015 National Day of Prayer, Graham hosted Ralph Reed's Presidential Forum in 2015, which was sponsored by Reed's Faith and Freedom Coalition. The board also includes James McDonald, Chicago megachurch pastor who leads a 13,000-member church, Jay Strack, student ministry leader, former president of the Conference of Southern Baptist Evangelists, Friends, this list of evangelical leaders is incredibly powerful. It is clear that Donald Trump intends to be greatly influenced by them, or else they would not be on that faith advisory board. What do all these evangelical leaders hope to accomplish in guiding Trump's thinking and theology? They certainly see their influence growing. Keep in mind, they are the only major social group that Trump truly has to keep his campaign promises to. And now they expect him to deliver and they are surrounding him with those who will make sure he does. He had brought them in close where they can monitor his progress. Friends, this is dangerous to all those who love and keep all of God's commandments. Many of them are Pentecostals who place their religious feelings ahead of the Bible truth. All of these individuals are committed Sunday keepers. They are active promoters of Sunday observance and many of them have defended it against Sabbatarians over the years. 
Therefore, all of them are part of the daughters of Babylon. They are already moving to hold Trump accountable for his promises to them. They may well push him beyond that and get him to do things to please them that he would not otherwise do. Tom McCluskey, Vice President of Government Affairs at the anti-abortion rights group March for Life, said if he fulfills the promises he's made, Trump could be the most pro-life president since Reagan. With the evangelicals on board, that's not hard to see. And though Trump was an uncomfortable fit for evangelicals during much of his campaign, he has won many of them over by promising them that he would appoint conservative judges to the Supreme Court, give Christians more power by removing the Johnson Amendment, and by working against abortion. He even published a detailed letter laying out five policies, all related to abortion, that he promised he would implement. From our earliest interactions, he had a very impressive command focus on communicating with and winning the support of evangelical leaders and voters, said Ralph Reed. Evangelicals were indispensable to the Trump coalition. And while there are other very important members of the Trump coalition, there is no question that the foundation is evangelicals and other voters of faith, Reed added. The good news is it's not us and them. It's just us, said Marjorie Dannenfelser, the head of the anti-abortion rights group Susan B. Anthony List. Dannenfelser is prioritizing the defunding of Planned Parenthood, which is also one of Trump's promises. Now we have the right president committed to signing this law, she said. We've got to get that quick work done. Meanwhile, a secretive group of evangelicals and anti-abortion rights group leaders and donors, including Dannenfelser, gathered at Tyson's Corner near Washington, D.C. to discuss the Supreme Court and administration appointments. These evangelicals feel that they have direct access to Trump and his team. They see Trump's appointees as a socially conservative influence on his incoming administration. His top people were part of us before they were part of him, a source said. It's that kind of relationship. The people running his campaign and now transition are people we've known forever, our friends and colleagues. His campaign has been run, since it started taking off, by long-standing respected social conservatives, which is, in essence, the religious right. Some conservative organizations are already deploying lawyers to delve further into vetting Trump's list of potential Supreme Court picks, said in an unnamed source. The conservative leaders are closely watching Trump's cabinet selections also. And Trump has already begun to deliver. His choice for Secretary of Education is Betsy DeVos, a school choice activist and a Republican mega-donor. She will certainly work to fulfill Trump's campaign promises on education. Trump's choice for Attorney General is also a classic example of someone chosen to please evangelicals. Senator Jeff Sessions will be the nation's chief law enforcement officer. Sessions lacks respect for the constitutional principle of church-state separation, which he has called an extra-constitutional doctrine and a recent thing that is unhistorical and unconstitutional. Senator Sessions said, We are at a period of secularization in America that I think is very dangerous. It erodes the very concept of truth, the very concept of right and wrong. Session aims to bring the nation back to God and to moral principles. Sessions also helped Trump vet a list of potential Supreme Court nominees. 
and the National Right to Life Organization has given him a 100% voting record on pro-life issues. Sessions also called on current Attorney General Loretta Lynch to investigate Planned Parenthood, the abortion giant. Perhaps he will do it now. God's people should be concerned about Sessions, too. Separation of church and state is at the foundation of all religious freedom. Donald Trump has said that he is going to work to remove the Johnson Amendment to the IRS Code and thereby undo the wall of separation and give more power to the churches. The Sessions nomination suggests that we are likely to see a shift away from secularization to the opposite extreme in which modern evangelical and Catholic principles instruct U.S. policy. Very dangerous. Sessions is also aligned with Trump on other issues like immigration and national security. When it comes to surveillance powers, he's more Catholic than the Pope, says Julian Sanchez, Cato Institute fellow. He wants to grant more authorities to few, with fewer limitations than even the law enforcement or intelligence agencies are asking for. Most people don't realize what they voted for in electing Trump. With Sessions at the helm of law enforcement, we are likely to have an opposite extreme from what we previously had under Obama. Look, many of the things that evangelicals want to accomplish are very good. The concern that God's people should have is that the nation is now likely to go to the opposite extreme and push for worship legislation, just as prophecy predicts. And if you think that Donald Trump's administration will pr protect religious freedom for minority religions, think again. Evangelicals will press him to sustain their views, even if they conflict with minority believers and their freedoms. It is all going the other way. With no respect for the separation of church and state, where will that take the United States prophetically? Listen to this important statement. The dignitaries of church and state will unite to bribe, persuade, or compel all classes to honor the Sunday. The lack of divine authority will be supplied by oppressive enactments. Political corruption is destroying love of justice and regard for truth. And even in free America, rulers and legislators, in order to secure public favor, will yield to the popular demand for a law enforcing Sunday observance. Liberty of conscience, which has cost so great a sacrifice, will no longer be respected. Friends, we're seeing all these things right now with Donald Trump. This is the prophetic destiny of a strong, evangelically supported U.S. administration. And it is dangerous for God's true people. We must be on our knees watching unto prayer so that we may be ready for the overwhelming surprise that could arrive during the Trump years as president. If it doesn't happen, we can be thankful to the Lord for holding it off. But the way it is now looking, we are in great danger of the loss of even the freedom of worship should issues mature under Trump's administration. With the election of Donald Trump, many Pentecostal Christians are saying that they now expect the Third Great Awakening. What does that mean? Friends, that means a national revival. Well, isn't that a good thing? In some ways, yes, but in other ways, no. A true revival has several key characteristics. Sinners feel the conscience quickened and deep conviction takes hold of their minds and hearts. They are convinced of sin and righteousness and of judgment to come. They feel the terror of appearing in their guilt and uncleanness before the searcher of hearts. They humble themselves in faith to Christ and receive remission of sins. They turn from their sins, reform their lives, and walk by faith of the Son of God in righteous living. 
They become reverent and meek. They earnestly pray and wrestle with God for the salvation of souls. They get power, but not government power. They get the power of the Holy Spirit. Is this the kind of revival we get today? I don't think so. What kind of national revival is to be expected in modern times? It will be in marked contrast to the true revival. There may be large accessions to the churches, which leads to megachurches, as they're now called. But there is not a corresponding increase in piety and spiritual life. Popular revivals often excite the emotions, and converts have little desire to listen to Bible truth in all its fullness, including the cutting truths. They are willing to listen to cunningly devised fables. A message that appeals to unimpassioned reason gets no response. The plain warnings of God's word are unheeded. Converts do not renounce their pride and love of the world. They are no more willing to deny self, to take up the cross and follow the meek and lowly Jesus than before their conversion. Fine houses and personal display have banished thoughts of God. Lands and goods and worldly occupations engross the mind. That's from Great Controversy, pages 465 and 466. A modern revival will be focused on getting government power to set things right, which will lead to oppressive Sunday laws. This is something Jesus in his earthly life never did, even though there were serious social ills. Modern evangelicals will start with laws designed to fix abortion, same-sex marriage, and other social ills, but eventually it will lead down the path to Sunday worship. Today there is a spirit of self-exaltation in modern religious movements. Only believe is the cry. No further effort is required. While religious leaders sometimes call for keeping of the Ten Commandments today, in doing so they justify Sunday worship and Sunday laws. The revival that is expected to come will not be a godly revival. These evangelical leaders may cheer and claim the blessing of the Lord, but it is not the blessing of the Lord of heaven. They will think that God is working wonderful miracles for them, but it is the enemy preparing them to do his bidding. When the Pentecostals went to see the Pope, Mr. Robeson called it a miracle, but it certainly wasn't a miracle from God. When Trump won the election, many evangelicals said that they thought it was a miracle. Well, it may have been a miracle, but the enemy can perform miracles too. Barry Black, the Seventh-day Adventist chaplain to the U.S. Senate, is also praying for another miracle, a revival in the U.S. Congress. He said he expects to see a revival sweep America, and it will commence in the halls of Congress. Friends, we're about to see some amazing things, just as the Bible prophecy predicted. With the election of Donald Trump, many Pentecostal Christians are saying that they now expect the Third Great Awakening. But what will such an awakening accomplish? Will it lead America straight into national apostasy, which is the Sunday law? Retired General Jerry Boykin said, Without a third great awakening, forces like those that took down the mighty empires of the past will also bring down the United States. We're going to wind up exactly like those other great empires, which only lasted on an average of about 200 years, he said. We're going to completely self-destruct, and you see the beginnings of that now. Pastor Rodney Howard Brown, who pastors a megachurch in Tampa, Florida, said, In the 1700s there was a great awakening. In the 1800s there was another. And we have to have one now. It's that critical. 
It's the believer in this land and the hand of God that's still on America, he added, and God's not finished with this land, so it's time for the church to rise up. Now, these evangelical spiritual leaders and their allies hope to bring revival power to so many Americans. It will spark a third great awakening. We have come to light the fires right in the belly of the beast, if you can put it that way, Howard Brown said. Howard Brown also said, God told him there's coming a revival of signs and wonders. Go tell the church to get ready for the coming revival. Then he added, if the fear of God would come back in the people, it would have a ripple effect throughout the land. Think about what Howard Brown is saying. What will put the fear of God back into the people? Will it be an existential crisis worse than 9-11? Did you hear that bit about signs and wonders? What does Revelation 13 say about signs and wonders? Here it is. Let me read it to you from verse 13 and 14. The second beast doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had the power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by the sword and did live. Friends, do we have these things today? We certainly do. Under Donald Trump, there, there will be unity of church and state. Friends, these evangelicals are expecting something amazing and wonderful to happen. They're working for it. They're getting everything in order that when the enemy does trigger an electrifying revival, so-called, they will be completely deceived by it. The miracles will make it appear as if the work of the enemy is the work of God. Jennifer LeClaire, editor of Charisma News, made the following remarks. The Jezebel curse has been broken in America by the election of Donald Trump. What happened in Israel after Jezebel's curse was broken? There was a revival. So they're expecting a big change. Now they think that they're working to bring America back to God. They are already deceived into thinking that God will lead them in this adventure, and it will be easy for them to think he is calling them to establish Sunday laws. They may well do it to force secular people back to church. They will certainly have their justifications. But I notice that there's a sheer lack of understanding among God's people concerning their mission. They emotionally defend Donald Trump as if he is the nation's savior from the forces of wicked Hillary Clinton. But this is not the prophetic viewpoint. No president can avoid having a prophetic impact. It varies from president to president. But this is the first time in the last 30 years that I have seen the maturing of so many issues at the same time. Now that evangelicals are in power, where will they take it? Many of God's people are caught up in the emotions of the stunning election, and they're not thinking about the prophetic implications. When Trump removes the Johnson Amendment, it will catapult evangelicals into power that they don't know how to use or restrain. Will the evangelicals get their wish for a strong man to lead this nation out of the abyss, as Mike Huckabee told Donald Trump? Incidentally, it isn't just the evangelicals that Trump cultivated. He also prostrated himself before Catholics, too. Though they were not as supportive of him as the evangelicals, Trump did all he could to get Catholic support. In a video released on ETWN, the Roman Catholic TV channel in the U.S., Trump made the following statements. 
Catholics are an important part of the America story. America has been strengthened by hard-working Catholics. From New York to California, the Catholic story is truly unique, and it's a great story. Trump appealed to Catholics that are not happy with the Obama administration's policies on key social issues. Politicians have been hostile to the church, hostile to Catholics. They have been hostile to the members of Catholicism. My administration will stand side by side with American Catholics to promote the values that we all share as Christians and Americans. What values would that be for Roman Catholics? For many, that would mean Sunday worship and Sunday Mass. Friends, listen to this interesting statement. When our nation shall so abjure the principles of its government as to enact a Sunday law, Protestantism will in this act join hands with popery. It will be nothing else than giving life to the tyranny which has long been eagerly watching its opportunity to spring again into active despotism. Is Trump going to help unite these two parties? Do you think the evangelicals and Catholics close to Trump are watching for their opportunity to enact a Sunday law? Some of them may be. After all, they don't like Sabbatarians, like Seventh-day Adventists, telling them that Sunday is not the Sabbath. Sabbatarians will be their first targets once they get a few other things sorted out. Oh, friends, we are near the end of time. Don't let it run out on you. Soon Jesus will begin the judgment of the living, which is about you and me. I want to be ready for that, my friends, don't you? Oh, let us pray. Our loving Father in heaven, Please show us how to live in consecration and in sanctification to you. Help us let go of the world and our selfishness so that we can be holy in your sight. We need Jesus more than ever. We see that we are nearing the end. The storm clouds are growing. Please hold back the winds of strife so that your people, especially ourselves, may get ready for the coming crisis and for Jesus to come in the clouds of glory. Please, Father, Give us your Holy Spirit that we may become faithful and may turn from sin and seek your righteousness. In Jesus' holy name, amen.
We hope you've been greatly blessed by this month's message. Your prayers and gifts mean much to us. Thank you for your support. The song you've just heard is called Psalm 139, sung by Melissa Collette. It is recorded on a CD with other beautiful hymns called Glorious Love. This lovely CD is available from Keep the Faith Ministry. If you would like to have a copy of this CD or copies for your friends or family, just send $16 each postpaid to U.S. addresses to cover the cost, and we will gladly send them. Please mention the Glorious Love CD. Our international listeners should also send $20 USD. The following is our monthly prophetic intelligence briefing, a feature that brings you current events in light of Bible prophecy, especially for those who love the appearing of Jesus Christ. We can see the signs of the times telling us that we are nearing the world's great crisis. May the Lord find us faithful. Our first item this month, Juncker calls for EU military headquarters. European Union Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker said the UN needs a military headquarters to work toward a common military force in his annual State of the Union address in Strasbourg. The lack of a permanent structure means money is wasted on missions, he said. He also called for Brexit negotiations to take place as quickly as possible. The Brexit vote has given added impetus to plans for greater defense cooperation. Because the UK has been a major military contributor to the EU and because the UK has always objected to the potential conflict of interest with NATO. Mr. Juncker said a common military force should be in complement to NATO. Though all members of the EU have military forces, some with extensive experience in operations abroad, how to organize these component parts to get greater security is the question. To do so requires the EU to be involved. Juncker wants to strengthen EU command and control facilities and appears to suggest that coordinating civil and military aspects should be run from the same headquarters. Since 2003, the EU has launched some 30 civilian and military operations in Europe, Africa, and Asia under the Common Security and Defense Policy. 16 are still ongoing. UK Prime Minister Theresa May distanced herself from the idea that Britain remaining in the single market would be very improbable if it meant giving up control of British borders. Mr. Juncker admitted the EU was facing an existential crisis. The drumbeat of nationalist, Eurosceptic populism reverberates around the continent. Public trust in the establishment is low because of the Brexit and warned that splits in the Union had left space for galloping populism. The European project continues. Let's choose to look forward. Be positive, Juncker said. Public trust in the establishment is low, whether traditional politicians, bankers, or EU bureaucrats. The drumbeat of nationalist, Eurosceptic populism reverberates around the continent. So Mr. Juncker gave three points to help mitigate the effect of the populism against the elite. Number one, maintain stability and share the burden of economic downturn. Number two, create solidarity in the Union. Number three, Promote security by strengthening the EU's borders and promoting greater cooperation between member states, as well as greater military centralization. 
Juncker urged a renewed focus on the EU as a driving force that can bring the Roman Empire and its military arm into prominence once again. And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wandered after the beast. Revelation 13, verse 3. Next, look who is pushing for the globalist TTIP. As many Europeans planned street protests September 17 against the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership Treaty called TTIP, Cardinal Reinhard Marx of Munich Freising, president of the Commission of the Bishops' Conferences of the European Community, said the agreement could contribute to a fairer world economic order, especially if it opened up to poorer countries. A just global economic order requires common rules, and TTIP could be a way to achieve this, he said. Given today's huge social and environmental challenges, I won't have a good feeling if Europe pulls out of shaping globalization and leaves the issues and actions to others, said the cardinal. We need a fair trading system as part of a global social market economy. Those responsible should continue negotiating and not just rashly give up, he added. U.S. and EU negotiators said they hoped to finalize the treaty under negotiation since 2013 by the end of 2016 and claim it would promote jobs and higher wages. In an unprecedented common position published in mid-June, Commies and the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops pledged to work together during the negotiations, adding that a treaty should ensure sustainable development, care for creation and participation by citizens, as well as upholding internationally agreed labor standards and prioritizing the prevention of harm to present or future generations, rather than to the pursuit of profits. No doubt they will be working together and coordinating their efforts with politicians on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean to get the agreement passed. Trade policies must be grounded in people-centered ethical criteria in pursuit of the common good for our nations and for all people around the world, the statement said. The centralizing of power starts with trade agreements. Those trade agreements lead to supranational organizations to regulate them. This leads to economic convergence and more supranational entities to regulate the nations in the agreement. The European Union, which started with a trade agreement, is a classic example of this process. Free trade agreements are not free. They are regulated and controlled. The Vatican is a globalist organization and wants to see centralized supranational organizations arise so that she can be involved in regulating them and preparing for a global religion. Rome works behind the scenes with the merchants and the kings of the earth to accomplish their trade agreements, which in turn gives her more standing and power. The United States and the Vatican, as well as the Eurocrats in Brussels, are all working together to organize a global government. They are all working in Rome's interest. Speaking of Rome's punishment, the Bible says, The merchants of these things which were made rich by her shall stand afar off for fear of her torment weeping and wailing, and saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in the fine linen, and purple, and scarlet, and decked with gold, and precious stones, and pearls, for in one hour so great riches is come to naught. Revelation 18, 15 through 17. Next, new black pope is chosen. Arturo Sosa Abascal, 
SJ-67, was chosen as the new superior general of the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits, on Friday, October 14, 2016. Abascal succeeds Adolfo Nicolas Pachon, SJ. The Society of Jesus, as the Jesuits are called officially, is the largest male religious organization in the Catholic Church, with officially nearly 17,000 members worldwide. Born in Caracas, Venezuela, Abascal was ordained to the priesthood in July of 1977. His duties before coming Superior General included an appointment to be the Delegate of Father General for the Jesuit Curia and the Interprovincial Houses and Works of the Society of Jesus in Rome. He has a degree from the Catholic University of Venezuela and a doctorate in political sciences from the University of Central Venezuela. He is the 31st Superior General. His history, curiously, parallels that of Pope Francis. He is the first Latin American to be chosen as the Superior General of the Jesuits. His distinguished career among Roman Catholics included his appointment as the Jesuit Provincial of Venezuela, similar to Jorge Bergoglio in Argentina. Prior to that, he was in charge of the social apostolate of the Jesuits in Venezuela, from which he oversaw the massive Catholic school system in Venezuela. He was also head of Central Gumilla, the Jesuit-run social and action research center. Central Gumilla tries to foster organizational growth and community empowerment, so it says. Social action has to do with working with the common people, particularly the poor, to build confidence and popularity of the Jesuits and encourage the people to become dissatisfied with the existing governing regime to facilitate change, which would naturally favor the Catholic Church. Centro Gumilla is also the venue for public forums on topics like election results, the future of the country, etc. Sosa is an expert in political science and understands how to organize communities to facilitate change where possible, in the name of helping the poor, of course. Sosa knows the Venezuelan Maduro regime firsthand. His election seems designed in part to bolster the Vatican's mediation in the fast deteriorating situation in Venezuela, which would thereby strengthen the Catholic Church in the communist country. Sosa was a member of the Foundation Council of the Andres Bello Catholic University and rector of the Catholic University in Tatira, Venezuela, both Jesuit universities. He has taught as a visiting professor in Latin American studies at Georgetown University in the U.S. He speaks Spanish, Italian, English, and understands French. Sosa was chosen as the Counselor General in 2014 during the 35th General Congregation by Adolfo Nicolas. In 2014, he joined the Curia of the Society of Jesus in Rome as delegate for the Curia for the Interprovincial Houses and Works of the Society of Jesus in Rome. These institutions are directly under the Superior General of the Jesuits. They include the Pontifical Gregorian University, the Pontifical Biblical Institute, the Pontifical Oriental Institute, and the Vatican Observatory. Perhaps his predecessor, Adolfo Nicolas, brought him to Rome to groom him for potential Jesuit leadership, and then worked to get him elected. Sosa was elected after a week of murmuratio, the political process of the Jesuits in which some 212 electors advocate for one or another of possible superior generals, 
similar to the Roman conclave. After sufficient time to develop their political influence, ballots were cast for the new superior general. It is unclear how many ballots were necessary, but apparently it only took a couple of hours. The Jesuit order has a long history of undermining God's truth, particularly the Protestant Reformation. The ecumenical movement, which has essentially stripped Protestant churches of their protest of Rome's teachings and practices, has been largely influenced by the Jesuits. The new superior general will, no doubt, continue this tradition, and thereby help the world to wonder after the beast, and to cause all men to worship the beast. Throughout Christendom, Protestantism was menaced by formidable foes. The first triumphs of the Reformation passed, Rome summoned new forces, hoping to accomplish its destruction. At this time, the order of the Jesuits was created, the most cruel, unscrupulous, and powerful of all the champions of popery. Cut off from earthly ties and human interests, dead to the claims of natural affection, reason and conscience wholly silenced, they knew no rule, no tie but that of their order, and no duty but to extend its power. To combat these forces of Protestantism, Jesuitism inspired its followers with a fanaticism that enabled them to endure like dangers, to oppose to the power of truth all the weapons of deception. There was no crime too great for them to commit, no deception too base for them to practice, no disguise too difficult for them to assume. Vowed to perpetual poverty and humility, it was their studied aim to secure wealth and power, to be devoted to the overthrow of Protestantism and the reestablishment of the papal supremacy. That's the Great Controversy, page 235. Next, Pentecostal group called Walking Ecumenism. The John 17 movement, based in Phoenix, Arizona, was founded by Joe Tosini. It is a movement about forming relationships and friendships among Christians and does not involve theological dialogue and the examination of doctrinal similarities and differences. Tosini and others in the movement focus on Jesus' actions and words at the Last Supper, and particularly on his prayer in John 17, verse 21, that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Pope Francis is very supportive of the John 17 movement and other informal ecumenical initiatives with evangelical and Pentecostal Christians. He called them walking ecumenism on October 12 during an ecumenical service in Rome. It is important that theologians study that they find agreement and identify disagreements, he said. This is very important. But in the meantime, ecumenism is done by walking and by walking with Jesus, not with my Jesus against your Jesus, but with our Jesus, end quotation. Tosini was at the Vatican in early October, participating in meetings to plan events for June 4, the Feast of Pentecost. He wants to celebrate with Pope Francis what he calls relational reconciliation, a process that is not about doctrinal alignment or theological differences among Christians. It's about affirming that in Christ, Christians are brothers and sisters called to serve one another, even when they differ like siblings in any family. An important step Tosini continued, is to follow Pope Francis' example, having Catholics and Pentecostals acknowledge each other as Christians and stop treating and speaking of each other as less than Christian. And all the world wandered after the beast, Revelation 13, verse 3. 
and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. Revelation 13, verse 8. Next, Polish bill to restrict shops on Sunday. More than 500,000 Poles have supported the civic draft law intended to limit trade on Sundays. The signatures were submitted to the Speaker of the Polish Parliament, or the SEM, Marek Kuczynskimu. The bill is working its way through the SEM. Employees in the Polish commerce sector are eagerly waiting for this law to come into force as soon as possible, said Alfred Budyara, the president of the Solidarity Commerce Trade Union and the chairman of the Legislative Initiative Committee, as he delivered the signatures in the parliament. This bill has the support of the society, said Budyara. Poles willingly signed the project, including employees in the commerce sector. They are overworked. They do not even want any additional bonus for working on Sundays. They want this day to spend it with their families. Poland has a lack of workers with shortages of about 20%. So limiting Sunday trading won't create layoffs. The initiative came from the Solidarity Trade Union, which is strongly Catholic. It was also encouraged by the ruling party. Other trade unions and employer organizations, including the Polish Craft Association, Catholic Action, Polish Chamber of Liquid Fuels, and the Polish Group of Supermarkets. As usual, the bill includes numerous exceptions allowing trade on Sundays at gas petrol stations, bakeries, news agents, and shops in railway stations and airports. The bill also exempts family-run shops as long as the sales are conducted by their owners, and also seven Sundays per year preceding Christmas and Easter. Sunday closing and Sunday rest laws are part of the elevation of Sunday, which will lead to Sunday worship laws and anti-Sabbath laws. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. Revelation 13, 7 and 8. Unfortunately, our time is up. Remember, there are more prophetic intelligence briefings on our website at ktfnews.com. It's been a great pleasure to spend this time with you. I hope you have been encouraged to live for Jesus, for we are near the end. Remember that God has a plan for your life and that right now you can make a new start with Jesus. Thank you for your prayers and support. And until next time, may God bless and keep you and your family in His loving and protecting care. Keep the faith.